As always, I'm joined by Zach Green across the dispatch box. Zach, what has caught your attention over the past seven days? Uh, well, we've come to that part of the political year where stories are very few and far between. But the one that's really caught my attention in, in British politics has been um, the government are now going to be offering freebies uh, to those young people who have yet been vaccinated or are waiting for their second vaccination. So, for example, I think in London, it's bolt rides to and from the vaccination centre. It's also Deliveroo and Uber Eats vouchers, discounted cinema stuff. It's, I think, to incentivise the um, uptake in the younger group in terms of vaccination because obviously it's been widely reported it's our group that's still lagging significantly behind it's not as if no one's taking them it's more i think our proportion is just above 60 percent as compared to other age groups which is in the 89 to 90 percent so that's caught my attention in terms of it could be really quirky it could be one of those stories where it's what could go wrong quite literally everything could go wrong i know we've both had our boat uh, our first doses so I guess it's not really as applicable to us. But would a Domino's voucher make you more inclined to, to get your second jab? No, I wouldn't say so. I think it'd be one of those nice things where it'd be nice to have it. But apart from that, it's kind of, I've made my decision. Everyone else is getting it. It's it's safer for me. It's safer for the people around me just to get the vaccine. I trust the vaccine. I completely see... Um, the upsides of it so yeah it might as well take it but i can see the government's logic in terms of some people are really skeptical with it and it's the carrot and stick approach isn't it it's been like that so many times before with many other things but yeah it's quite questionable as to whether this is going to be the tipping point to getting the vaccination or not and if people are of that mindset i think they might have to think again yeah i'm a little bit skeptical in terms of what kind of impact this will have and it, it... I know it's different to eat out to help out, but it feels a little bit similar in the sense that the government is looking at spending money on things that are far from essential. Like, do, should the government really be giving people our age kind of Nando's vouchers so they get the vaccine? I'm not sure. And I guess there's an economic argument to say, well, if they have the vaccine, they're less likely to perhaps contract the virus, they're less likely to spread the virus, they're less likely to end up in hospital. Of course, all of those things means that there's less of an economic impact due to the coronavirus because more people are protected and then kind of the economy is stronger and therefore you're essentially trading a 10 pound off nando's versus someone spending several weeks in the hospital which of course is is going to be more expensive than than the nando's so there's an interesting argument there to be made and i think this is going to be something that's really interesting there was something i came across um on a podcast last week i think it was where it might have been on tv actually where somebody was talking about how well we could we could create a system where there isn't so much of this big thing about the vaccine so like in schools um kind of pupils receive vaccines i think in like year eight in year 10 something like that depending on what vaccines they are obviously there's um hpv is one of them for predominantly girls i believe although i think they've rolled it out for boys as well now um and stuff like that and they make a big thing about it they make it like educational like oh this is why we're doing it so maybe there could be a case. Um, and one of the things in the news today, we're recording this podcast on the 4th of August at six o'clock. Uh, one of the things in the news today is that they're thinking about rolling out the vaccine or are going to roll out the vaccine to 16 to 18 year olds. So could you make it something that's more kind of social in the way that it's delivered is an interesting question. I should say hello as well. Hi, my name is Luke James. And as always, 
This is uh, the Midfield Politics Podcast. This is episode two of series two. As always, we start the podcast by asking each other, well, at least I ask Sack and then I just speak, basically, what has caught our attention over the past seven days. Listeners of the show will also be aware that for season two, we've launched an interview series. And on today's episode, immediately after I talk about what's caught my attention this week, I have an interview segment prepared with Raw 1251AM's former head of news and current treasurer, Enoch Mukungu, about American politics. So we talk about the Biden administration, we talk about Infrastructure Week, we talk about kind of the GOP heading into the 2024 presidential election. We covered an awful lot of ground. It was a really, really fun chat. So stick around. If you're interested in American politics, we will be talking about that in just a moment, Enoch and I. Um, The thing that's caught my attention this week, Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister, is currently in Scotland and he's decided this, I believe he decided this yesterday, there was a letter exchanged not to visit the First Minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon. And the reason this caught my attention is because this has kind of sparked more discourse about the prospect of an of an indie ref two, um, which of course is going to be kind of high on the agenda for the SNP up in Scotland and, and the other parties across the United Kingdom as well. And this also links back to the interview that we had last week. So last week I spoke to Adam Stokes, who is currently doing his PhD in politics at the University of Reading. He's interested in successionism and kind of independence movements, nationalism, all that kind of stuff. And we had a really interesting discussion about successionism in the UK. So we spoke about Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and also the Northern Independence Party. So there's a lot to get into there. So yeah, the thing that caught my attention this this week is the fact that Boris Johnson going to Scotland, which gives him a fantastic opportunity to kind of meet in person, something he's not been able to do with the First Minister and has decided not to. And the question I'll throw over to you, Zach, as we kind of wrap up this segment, is what does that say about kind of the Prime Minister's attitude towards accountability. It seems a bit blasé again, doesn't it, with Boris Johnson, that it's that age-old thing, I think, with his political career, he takes things for granted on the off chance that it doesn't really matter. And it's these little things that matter to the Conservative Party, as Theresa May once said in her opening speech as Prime Minister, she is leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party. There are a huge group of MPs, I think, that really do take that part of the party name really seriously. And for Boris Johnson to keep kind of fracturing this relationship with Scotland and Scotland's First Minister uh, doesn't bode well for them. Although the polls in terms of independence are actually back in No's favour, I think it was YouGov's poll of polls has No on about six points in front. It's still nonetheless really interesting because we know polls can go up and down, up and down. And if once a campaign begins, all bets are off. But still, it's this backdrop, isn't it, going into any sort of election campaign involving Scotland that who has Scotland's interests at heart? Is it going to be those in Scotland who take a lot of care in Scotland or is it someone who just visits on the off charts for the publicity, which I think that's what Boris Johnson's really showing here. And it's... It's just very blasé how he goes about things. And I think there are an increasing amount of MPs in his own party that are just beginning to be a bit reticent towards it. I think that wraps up what has caught our attention this week. Before we move into the interview with Enoch, there's two more things I should say. 
first of all, please do follow us on Twitter at midfieldpolitic, at LukeJames underscore 32, and at ZG1999 underscore for, well, an array of things. So on, on the actual podcast account, you'll get, you'll get lots of information about the podcast and news. We'll be asking you for questions, guest requests, all that kind of stuff. And of course, you'll, you'll see all the shout outs for the podcast episodes. If you follow me, you're going to get a lot of football and ice hockey and politics and, and really terrible jokes. And if you follow Zach, you're going to get an extreme take on everything to do with Chelsea and politics <laughs> and Love Island yeah. as well. Love Island is part of Zach's repertoire. So if any of that stuff is interesting to you, please do make sure scroll into the description um, and you'll find all the details for us and also Enoch as well. I'll put the, put the details for Enoch's Twitter account and uh, his station, Raw 1251am, in the description as well. On today's episode, so we're going to move over to the interview in just a moment, but on today's episode, Zach and I are going to be talking, albeit briefly, about the future of the European Union, and we're going to focus on two topics in particular. First of all, we're going to talk about Hungary and the situation there with regards to the new LGBT law and the referendum that's going to happen in 2022. After that, we're going to turn our attention to something that's kind of related to the Olympics in the fact that a couple of Belarusian athletes are not returning to Belarus. They've instead been given, at least one of them so far, has been given a Polish visa to return after they was almost forced to go back home to Belarus. So those are the things on the docket for today. But before we get into the future of the European Union, I hand you over to Enoch and I talking about American politics. And I'm delighted to be joined by Raw's former head of news and now treasurer, Enoch Mukungu. Enoch, how are you doing? Um, I'm I'm good. Thank you for having me. No worries. No, I was really looking forward to this. Uh, when I was speaking to Zach and I was like, we need to interview people to kind of mix up a little bit. I was like, who am I going to interview? And I was like, right, before we branch out and, and start pestering people I don't know yet, I'll go through people <laughs> I know. Um, and Enoch was like very high on the list. So I'm delighted that you agreed to come on. Um we should explain. So, Enoch, you study history and politics at the University of Warwick. Yes. yes going right. into your final year. Um, yes. And the reason for our meeting today is that you are a bit of an American politics... Uh, I'm trying to think a of a word. Nerd? Watcher. Fanatic? Nerd? Watch, watcher? Fanatic? Watcher? I'll, I'll take watcher. I'll take watcher. It feels respectable. Watcher. Yes. Watcher. It's like, it's like train watching, but with American politics, which, I mean, can also be a bit of a kind of train crash at times anyway and on that note so i was looking at at the cnn kind of u.s politics homepage at the minute yeah there's a lot of coronavirus discourse um so i should say before we before we move on we're currently recording this segment of the podcast on the third of august first of all how on earth is it the third of august i've got no idea um at 1206 so if i don't know california declares independence between now and when i speak with zach and we haven't covered it in the show, that would be why. Um, so yeah, as I was saying, American politics is kind of a wash with coronavirus discourse at the minute because there's a kind of another spike in cases going on. Lindsey Graham has just tested positive and he's saying that he has flu-like symptoms. There's lots of discussions about whether or not it should be kind of allowed to, to mandate people taking the vaccine. Um, and on the other end of the spectrum, there's this kind of outrage at Barack Obama's 60th birthday party. So 
and that's just the coronavirus. But today we kind of wanted to talk about all sorts of different things. So, so first of all, Enoch, the way we start the podcast is I ask Zach what has caught his attention over the past seven days. So in US politics, what has kind of caught your attention recently? Um, I would have to say the big thing I'm looking at right now is this bipartisan um, infrastructure plan that they're, they're trying to get through. Um, so it's, it's been a sort of a joke in US politics for years that Trump was trying to have every week on the Trump administration was infrastructure week, where Trump was trying to launch a big new infrastructure plan that never materialized. Um, so Joe Biden has finally got back at him and actually launched infrastructure week. And the original plan was Democrats going to do a big, massive, I think like $3.5 trillion infrastructure plan. Um, but they've now decided to do, sort of split up in two stages. So to do one bipartisan plan now with Republicans, which I, I'm, I'm going to try and find. I always, I'm very bad with the numbers. The numbers in my head are never, they're never quite what we, I, I want. Um, yeah, so like a, a small plan now with Republicans, but then a larger plan later for reconciliation, which is like the system they used to pass budgets in the Senate where they can't get um, 60, 60 votes on, in the Senate House it, itself. Um, so I've been watching that very closely because it seems like every day a Republican joins, Republican drops out. Currently, Mitch McConnell is saying it's going to go through. So it's it looks like, it looks like Biden might actually get on these big bipartisan victories he promised he would and no one thought he could. Um, yeah, that's what that's, um, yeah. So it's it's fifty. It's um. I mean, it's actually still it's still pretty big relatively. It's five hundred. It's five hundred fifty billion um infrastructure infrastructure spending. So it's it's just it's you know it's just the big one. And for the people who haven't been kind of following this quite as closely, <laughs> yes. what's which I assume would be quite a lot of our listeners in fairness. Yeah. Um, the difference between the um, bipartisan bill and kind of the Democrat only bill is that the Democrat only bill covers things that you often kind of in ordinary circles wouldn't necessarily refer to as infrastructure. Um, so c can you briefly kind of go into what the difference between the two is? Yeah, I mean, well, so the first the first major, major, major difference is just like the sheer size. Like, um, 50, like 550 billion is still big, but it is not the same level of big, um, uh, you know, that we were looking at before. Um, but, I, but again, the second difference is, like, as you said, Democrats were trying to expand the definition of what infrastructure was before. So they were like, you know, spending on care, that's infrastructure. They family planning, that's infrastructure. There's so many different things that, you know, I, I mean, I will hold my hands up here and say I do. I think if I had to put myself politically down, I'd probably lean more Democrat in America. But dear God, they were really trying to force through some things that just weren't like, you know, being rude about it, they just weren't infrastructure. But I think they were all worthwhile things to spend money on and they thought this was a good way to get it through. Um, yeah, so the new the new bill is more focused on what we consider traditional infrastructure, so like you know roads, building, plumbing works, that kind of thing. Um, I can I'm trying I as you speak I'm trying to find the exact details. Of, okay, so like, there's a pretty good graph in the New York Times. Like the original bill, it would cover things like you know oh cover obviously things from infrastructure like roads, bridges, in, um, manufacturing, but also cover things like community in uh, house care for like the elderly. Um, ensuring everyone has broadband, creating clean energy credits, that kind of schooling, that kind of thing. Um, whereas, of course, the new bill it just focuses it, it just focuses on roads, um, clearing of abandoned. Uh, this is one thing that someone deliberately highlighted: clearing up abandoned wells, um, mines, and super funding sites, um, power, and then power infrastructure, all that kind of stuff. So less of the, you know, the more audacious goals of Democrats. For sure, and yeah. the other the other thing that I wanted to ask in terms of the infrastructure bill, and yeah. and, and and this will bleed into other conversations as well about kind of Congress at the minute, yeah. is what kind of role are the Conservative Democrats, the the Joe Manchins of of the world, playing in this conversation? How kind of bought in 
are the likes of Manchin in terms of the bipartisan bill compared to the kind of more radical Democrat bill? Well, I think the, the key thing we have here is that Joe Manchin is basically flat out saying there's no way to do the bigger bill. He will not help with the bigger bill unless they pass the, the bipartisan one. Which I um, so I think is is this big issue where like Joe Manchin, I mean he's been intermodulating it done like lots of meetings. I think Lindsey Graham actually caught COVID at one of the meetings at Joe Manchin houseboat potentially, which is something that we have to be watching out for. Yeah, but the meeting was the houseboat. He brought him into the White House. He got the agreement with these people. They're the reason they they are the reason hopefully they can get to sixty votes and it will it will pass. Um, but the only reason this even some of them are contemplating is because without this, Joe Manchin does not pass a bigger bill. Yeah, and that, that is ultimately kind of at the crux of lots of issues. And again, they've had, Manchin has been particularly problematic in terms of Democrats passing things on kind of voting reform and that kind of stuff as well. And speaking about the broader picture and kind of to start the, to start the segment, I spoke about kind of the coronavirus situation in America. Yeah. How is the Biden administration dealing with that at the moment? Kind of what are the national policies? Because I was reading something earlier where kind of certain parts of Texas, even if they wanted to bring in a mask mandate, say they couldn't because of, of local laws there, even if kind of they, they disagreed with them kind of at more kind of local level. So what was the coronavirus situation at the minute? Well I think the there are two big headlines, which is that Joe Biden he wanted to have a century of Americans vaccinated to Biden the fourth of July. Obviously that part was on, was not reached. Um but we have now just passed the seventy um seventy percent. And the second big thing is that there's plenty of places in America trying to bring back ma mask mandates rather because, um, and I'll have to jump back a bit actually, rather than um, giving, putting vaccine mandates, particularly in New York, um, because New York tried to put a vaccine mandate in schools, teachers unions protested it, so that's been scrapped instead of going for, like, for a mask mandate. And there's now been this whole discussion of whether or not it's, you know, better to simply say, look, just get vaccinated twice, then that's it, no think about it again, versus basically masks constantly for the next year or so uh, and what's going to be more appealing to the public for sure and kind of in terms of the international perspective on this the canadian government has kind of changed their policy with regards to americans entering canada that comes into force i believe well i think to kind of the start of august so kind of now um that hasn't yet been reciprocated so there are still some differences in terms of how that is being dealt with um one of the other hot button issues in terms of the coronavirus is as you mentioned vaccine so as many of you listening probably aren't following how kind of america is distributing vaccines it's a little bit different i say a little bit it's very different to what we're doing here in the uk so basically it's more of a free-for-all so you kind of sign up and and go and and that's kind of how they've, they've got about it which has allowed them to get through a little bit more rapidly than say here in the united kingdom who followed kind of the the, the steps through one of the questions at the minute is should people should employers be able to say kind of you have to have a vaccine in order to work here whether that's kind of a healthcare setting or whatever it might be how do the two parties sit on this kind of question well i think the big thing we've seen in vaccines really is that even though you know donald trump was very proud of the fact that you know he spearheaded the vaccines and you know in many ways um some of the vaccines coming in america will you know call they will help by his you know his massive moonshot program um republican party's taking a very hard line against it mostly because Fox News took a very hard line against it, um, against vaccinations. But they are now coming around slowly, I think, as it becomes increasingly clear that Delta variant is hitting particularly red places particularly hard. And without vaccinations, I, I mean, it's, that, that explains the sudden dramatic shift we've seen since July the, um, July the 4th, where we've seen speed up so much. I think both sides are rallying behind vaccinations now. I, 
it's just becoming an issue whether or not it's mandated. It's the real key issue. No matter, no matter all the other divides, the real key issue for now is that do you mandate vaccination for things like going to concerts, going out, or do you accept this would mean other people's personal choice and seek to sort of mask mandates? Or I mean, some people say just you know, throw your hands up and deal with COVID as is. And in terms of the um, kind of pandemic adjacent kind of policy, so aside from the direct kind of how we're dealing with this from a health perspective, there's also kind of pressure in terms of the legislation in the United States with regards to housing and, and rent and all this kind of stuff. So today, the um, kind of the legislation that prevented people from being evicted because they were unable to pay their rent during the pandemic has, has been lifted, which is obviously a cause of huge concern. I imagine the Biden administration is going to have to do something about that kind of what what has the attitude been kind of within the democratic party i think the clear signal from biden that um is that only congress can fix this legislation the president does not have the authority in his mind to simply unilaterally oppose unilaterally say actually no eviction momentum um i can't pronounce the word so i apologize memoratorium like you know what i'm just gonna everyone from now on take it as assumed that's what i mean when i say eviction ban that's what that's what i mean um the eviction ban is basically I mean, he said only congress can fix it and he's saying he wants congress to fix it the issue is again though that you know we have the split here between democrats who are currently in congress and people like kirsten cinema who has Who's on holiday currently? She's on holiday, and she has um she's told them she has no plans to return to, to passing legislation before they go on, on recess. Um, and all, and Republicans aren't exactly leaping to, in to help um on this particular issue. So I think there's a strong will for Democrats to get this sorted, but it's actually there's just pure now practical challenges to achieving anything. Where again, it's uh, it happens when you have such a paper thin majority that one person literally throwing hands and saying, you know what, guys, actually I wrote plan my holiday for weeks. I'm not going to work today. Um, well, what can you do? For sure. And kind of before we move over and kind of I want to ask a couple of questions about kind of foreign affairs and yeah. then finally about kind of the, the GOP as well, more specifically in terms of Biden's style. So we spoke at the top of the segment about kind of how he wants to pass this uh, this bill with the Republicans is is looking for bipartisan is the word I'm looking for. Yeah. He's trying to work in a bipartisan spirit. How well is that working so far? I think if I'm, um, uh, this, uh, this is going to, this is going to be something that mostly targets people who know about American politics, but we'll try and explain it. But Joe Biden is in many ways the anti-Ted Cruz, in the sense that Ted Cruz is hated by everyone. Even the people who work with Ted Cruz hate Ted Cruz. Um, if, official is Lindsey Graham, who's as diehard Republican as you can find, who once said that if you shot Ted Cruz on the Senate floor and the trials on the Senate floor and you're being prosecuted by the Senate, you could not find any votes to convict you. Um, no one in the world likes Ted Cruz. Well, on the other hand, people do really like Joe Biden. Um, I think something people notice is that, you know, um, in comparison to when, you know, under Biden or under the Clinton, where you sort of had, the, and in fact, they were also said under Trump and under George Bush, there was sort of this sort of pocket industry of people publishing books or just being like, God, this person's awful. Read here the secret reasons this person's awful. You didn't even know yet. Biden's not had that similar kind of thing because he is just very... He's a very likable figure to people. People go, oh, you know, Joe Biden, I've, I've had strong feelings that go, yeah, he's like a nice enough guy. I think that effect, we've seen that effect work in Senate as well, where Republicans are more willing to go to him and be like, you know what, we can get a deal done. It's easy to get do a deal with you and not lose any respect and not like, lose constituents or anything. I think we can do this and survive. And that's making, I wouldn't say it's making, you know, because obviously there's some, still some real serious issues going on in Congress right now. I mean, 
there was that sort of anti-mask mandate protest we saw a few days ago, which was just absolutely absurd. But I think overall, there's more willingness to be like, you know what? If we can find ways to compromise and find ways to work together, you can find maybe like five or six Republican votes who are willing to work with Joe Biden on that kind of thing. Uh, even up to, you know, over 10 now with this particular infrastructure bill. For sure. And I think that that's a really interesting point with regards to the change in, in, in tax in terms of kind of the White House. Of course, there's going to be a massive change in tax between Trump and Biden, but of course, it's, it's worth pointing out. Um, foreign policy, I think, is really interesting. And, and one of the issues that has been coming down the track for a very long time is the troop withdrawal from Afghanistan. So, for example, today, the Biden administration has expanded access to a refugee program for Afghans who, who worked with the US during kind of the time in, in the country. What is your view on how America has dealt with the troop withdrawal? I, I think I will, I, I mean, it's very difficult for me to say this because I'm a massive narcissist. I will hold my hands up and say, you know what? I'm not the military expert here. I think there's plenty, there's plenty of people out there who know better than me on this particular issue. I think Joe Biden is going back to the best way possible. Uh, it's, it's always going to be difficult because, you know, I mean, there's to an extent, this is just a surrender. You know, the Taliban are the US is basically fully for the Taliban to be back in again and to lose lots of the ground they've 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 hard you know, they've hard won in the years. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think to the extent this one, I'm going to get everyone who works with us out. I'm going to try to do as much as I can to try and build a framework here that means some of the liberalism we've injected in this country can stick around afterwards. I just I think it's it's one of the situations where you know. There's so much going on in US politics at one time. I don't think there's been enough chance for Senate to actually react to what he's doing on, on them, you know, on Afghanistan. I think if there was a clearer docket of with Chloe, if Chloe wasn't here and there's a clearer docket, I think you'll be seeing a much harsher backlash towards it if people actually look at the details of what's going on there. But since that can't happen, I think he's gonna get out pretty scot-free, actually. Yeah, I think there are some parallels to be drawn between how the US is acting with regards to Afghanistan with with Vietnam. It's almost like, yeah, we're, yeah. we're never going to win in this situation. So let's just kind of scuttle off as quickly as possible and hope yeah. no one notices. Um, yeah, I think, yeah. I, I think the big difference here is that in, with Vietnam, there was um, very much a sense from basically everyone in politics that they, they could just stick it out. Like Nixon didn't pull out of Vietnam purely because he was like, you know what, we've lost. He, he pulled out because he thought you saw a, a chance for tactical advantage at home of being like, you know what, pressure's off. Whereas if Joe Biden, I think Joe Biden's big advantage is for lots of Americans, one of Afghanistan's already over. They don't they don't think about it most of their life. It's it's one of those, you know, advantages of, you know, this draftless war. Is that Joe, they could have, he could have kept fighting that war for four years, got to the end of his term, and someone on news would have been like, oh yeah, more Afghanistan's happening. And people have been like, oh wait, really? Um, so I think there's a difference of like popular compression, popular view of the thing. Um, but also I, I think with Nixon there was a more resigned state within the US Army about Vietnam. They were like, you know, we have we have properly, properly lost this. In, separate separate from Joe Biden Nixon himself. Whereas like I think in this in this case it's very much Joe Biden being like, guys, we've lost here. Just give up on it. And the sorry my voice is going. And the US Army being like, no, we can we can hold on here. We can keep going. Um and one of there's two more things I wanted to ask briefly. Yeah. First of all, we've spoken kind of in a, a Republican adjacent way about what the GOP is doing at the minute with regards to the infrastructure bill, coronavirus, all this kind of stuff, and how the discourse is separated. It it saddens me in a way that I'm going to ask you this question in yeah. August 2021. 
but August 2021, as, as we've seen over the course of this year, very, very quickly turns into kind of August 2022 and August 2023. And I have a feeling you probably know where I'm going with this now. Um, who's going to run for the Republicans in 24? Um, if Donald Trump is still alive and functioning, it will be him. It will be him. Um, the only way I see him not running is if they, they ban him from their party. Um, he has massive, to this, to this day, he has massive influence over the base. Um, he's massive influence over the base. He massive over the party itself. It's structures. He's he's over the last four years bent the party in his image in a way we've never really seen a president in modern times. Um, he's the closest thing they have to like a proper British style party leader who's consistent and stays the same. And it's like as far as the base is concerned, like, people he endorses, they should win. That's it. That's it. That's the whole ball game. Um, if if Trump can't if Trump can't run. Um, I I don't think there's a clear successor. I think the problem the problem of having someone who's so dominant in the field it's sort of like in 2016 the Democrats actually where Hillary Clinton was so dominant in the field that um you know before before the actual the actual election came along obviously once the election started Bernie was obviously the obvious second choice and before the actual election came along who would have guessed who would have been the second runner up in that election no one would know to tell you no one would know to tell you I think it's very much the same with 2024. And another question on Trump. I had a sneaky suspicion you'd probably say Donald Trump. It was kind of within my answer as well. Yeah. Is it possible for him to win an election without being on Twitter? I mean, he couldn't win an election while on Twitter. So I think that this is this is. I think his big problem is um, Trump. Trump won on a fluke. He spent four years getting more unpopular. He lost the election, and proceeded to continue acting in ways that made him more unpopular. I think Republicans can nominate him in 2024, and maybe you know he can rehabilitate his image to a degree. But I think at uh, the same time, I just I don't see, I I don't see how he rebuilds enough popularity to become a credible challenger. Like, I mean, I'm I'm not I'm gonna I'm not gonna be the idiot who sits here right now and says Trump versus Biden 2024 is gonna be a, a Walter Mondale style blowout where Joe Biden wins all but one state. That states gonna be Florida. But I am I am gonna be the guy who sits here and be like. I don't see Trump has in two elections now, two elections in a row, lost the popular vote, and now one election lost the electoral college vote. I no one in history has come back from that, you know. No one in history has come back from that. I mean, if the man does it, give him an award, figure out, get his brain sleep for science. He's clearly a political mastermind. But I just don't see how it happens. And do you think it will be Biden in twenty four? Um, I think the only way it's not Biden is if Biden is genuinely too infirm, like America. Um, I don't. I, I think the phrase uh, "gentrock." I, I keep pronouncing words wrong. This is how you can tell I've not talked to anyone in a long time. I can visualize where in my head. I'm going to say "gentrocracy," you know, rule of the old people. America, it's got a lot of old people. Joe Biden, for an old person, he's he's not that. I think a lot of people make jokes here you know, about oh, yeah, Joe Biden looks like he's you know on downward slope. The, the thing, the fact of the matter is, I think you know, he used to, yeah, he used to have a lot more energy. He's now in a more relaxed phase of his life. You know, he's still he's still going. He's still got some gusto to him. Um, and he's, you know, most of the, the other major Democrat, like Kamala Harris, I think, you know, if Joe Biden, it's not Joe Biden, I could see touching right around her. I just worry about whether or not the base would accept her. That's the only question. Bernie Sanders, um, I love the man. He's he's not going to run again. He, it's, it's I think, same, if Joe Biden's not able to run in 2024, neither is Bernie Sanders. We have to put a very firm marker on that. And I guess maybe Elizabeth Warren could try and make him, but I think it's going to be Kamala Harris if it's not Joe Biden. And that's the thing when when you look at kind of some of the figures who who could perhaps run as kind of the Democratic nominee for, for president. Joe Biden currently at the time of recording is seventy eight. Um, Elizabeth Warren is seventy two. 
Bernie, almost said Bernie Eccleston then, Bernie Sanders is 79. So, of course, that does kind of leave it open to Harris. I'd imagine if, if, if Biden isn't the person to run. Now, we open this segment by kind of, I say we, I open the segment by asking Enoch, what has kind of caught your attention in American politics at the minute? The way that we're going to close all of these interview segments is by asking the guests kind of, what should we look out for in American politics going forward? So, Enoch, over to you. What is kind of the story that we should look out for kind of going towards the end of the year? I think you should keep your eyes very solidly um, on any any single state race you can. I think there's a bunch of state races coming up. And I think especially ones that involve lots of suburbs, because that will tell you about the future fortune of the GOP going into next year. If the GOP is still losing in suburbs, they are... I don't know, I was about to use a word, I realised that you probably don't know if I use it, I'm going to say screws. Screw, screwed, okay? They are screwed going into the, the midterms next year. And the GOP do badly in midterms. That's something very, very interesting about how Joe Biden is doing as, um, as president. And I think it could it could say some very positive things for Joe Biden about 2024, but we, we will see. Enoch, you, you uh, good listeners, so they have, or actually had a show on, on Enoch's radio station, Rock 51am. Um, the football and hockey show, and and, and the, the penultimate week I was recording, or rather it was live, it was in the studio, and I was speaking to the film editor of, of the, the newspaper I used to run, um, and I just threw a question over to him, like, any final thoughts? To which James really helpfully replied, g- given that this is a, obviously you have to comply with Ofcom regulations, simply, fuck you, Aether. And then kind of Enoch walked in and was like, what on earth is going on? So no, you, know, you, you were more than welcome to say the word if you wanted to, yeah. uh, but completely um, up to you. That does kind of though draw this segment to a close. The only other thing we should say to Enoch, Enoch, where can the people find you on social media? Because I've got to say, of all of the kind of student journalisty type people at Warwick, you are probably the most entertaining follow. So, so where can people find you? <laughs> Um, you, you can find me at Enoch, but I'm, I've had some, I, you know, hope, hopefully my name will be spelled in the description uh, and you can find me at Enoch Bakungu, um, basically everywhere. And also please go follow Raw. It's a great radio station. You can find that at Raw Topic 1am. And we promise that future presenters and hosts won't swear live on it. At least like, <laughs> I hope. I, I can't promise that for legal. Re- I feel like if I did promise that I would lose my job. I could just hope they don't. I hope, I hope they don't. I can't promise anything. Fingers crossed. Well, James has graduated now, so so hopefully not. Um, Enoch, thank you so, so much for your time. And that brings to a close the second interview segment of Series 2 of the Midfield Politics Podcast. If you have any requests for interviewees going forward, please do let me know at LukeJames underscore 32 on Twitter. And well, anyway, back to the show. And that was our conversation with Enoch Makungu, who, of course, you can find on Twitter, you can find on Instagram, you can find Enoch absolutely everywhere. And as I mentioned before the interview, Enoch is a keen poster about Love Island as well. So if you're, if you're enjoying this series, and I have no idea why you would be enjoying Love Island at any time, but especially this time, then you can find lots of information about that on Enoch's Twitter feed. But back to kind of more serious matters in hand. In the rest of the podcast, Zach and I are going to be talking about the future of the European Union and a couple of challenges that are being posed to the EU from both within and from outside. So if you're interested in sports, you might have been aware last weekend was the Hungarian Grand Prix, the F1 race that takes place in Hungary. And Formula One world champions, Lewis Hamilton and Sebastian Vettel spoke out 
against the planned LGBT law referendum by the Hungarian government before the race. So to give you some context, Hungary's government wants a national referendum to showcase public support for a new law that the European Union says discriminates against LGBTQ plus people. The government says, however, that the law aims to protect children, but many have criticised it as an attack on kind of LGBTQ plus communities. And this is where the likes of Lewis Hamilton and Sebastian Vettel come in. So writing on social media before the Grand Prix this weekend, this is what Lewis Hamilton had to say. Ahead of the Grand Prix this weekend, I wish to share my support for those affected by the government's anti-LGBTQ plus law. It is unacceptable, cowardly and misguiding for those in power to suggest such a law. Everyone deserves to have the freedom to be themselves, no matter who they love or how they identify. I urge the people of Hungary to vote in the upcoming referendum to protect the rights of the LGBTQ plus community. They need our support more than ever. Now, Sebastian Vettel was also spoken out about this, and this is kind of how I wanted to approach the conversation. So this is what the German had to say. I find it embarrassing for the country, said Vettel. I can't understand why the government is suggesting to see why everybody should be free to do what they like. He went on to say that it was basically an embarrassing situation for the European Union to be in. And now, of course, this is a matter of controversy that has been going on for a long time. You'll remember during the European Championships, there was that big situation between kind of the mayor of Munich, who wanted to light up the Allianz Arena in kind of the color, the colours of the pride flag for a game between France and Hungary. I believe it was between France and Hungary. Um, and and that was denied by UEFA because UEFA basically said, look, we don't get involved in kind of party politics was the argument. So all of this is going on. And the issue at hand in terms of what this has to do with the European Union is that this bill poses a direct threat to what the European Union is meant to represent. The European Union is meant to be a an organisation of like-minded countries who work together to, to kind of trade freely and promote certain values. And this legislation seems to be, and in my opinion clearly is, an affront to those values. So Zach, what does the European Union do about this? It, it, it's a really difficult position and it's kind of, it echoes kind of the troubles that the European Union have always found themselves in. That there's, there is this uneasy coalition of countries that inevitably do diverge in their views on many things. And this is, I think, one of those one of those situations where I think silence is compliance with with the untoward view. I think the European Union do have to make a stand on this, that this is unacceptable. It's clearly a disturbing move in, in Hungary. It's not the first move by Viktor Orban that's, that's caused controversy in Hungary. It certainly won't be the last either. But it's all about framing as well. I don't think the European Union may find it useful just to say, oh, this is really bad. Hungary should reconsider. I think if they could do that and they think they have a chance of changing Hungary's mind as such, I think they already have done it. But I think they do have to come down a lot harder on Hungary. But at the same time, it's, it is keeping everyone in the European Union happy. We know through Brexit, this is kind of everyone has to agree on one position and this is where all different viewpoints all different ca uh, cultures countercultures all come together and it's really difficult to have a really united view and i think if the european union was to be a fractured one where 
they was to say essentially we condemn this but i think the whole message gets lost in translation it's really difficult for the european union it it is really difficult but at the same time i think they do have to be a bit harder on their messaging otherwise this is going to continue happening and it's really disturbing and the reaction across europe has, has been kind of along those lines mark Rutte, the dutch prime minister has, has spoken out against this legislation um kind of pointedly during during the european championships that's when that came up so the national spokesperson for hungary has been speaking to the bbc recently and he basically said that it's not a threat so hungary the, the government in hungary is not particularly concerned about what the eu does with regards to this anti-lgbtq plus law referendum and just to fill you in in case you're not aware of kind of what the law is meant to do so hungary's new law is basically intended to limit the teaching of homosexuality and transgender issues to under 18. now critics say that this is kind of evidently homophobic and transphobic in the sense that it basically seeks to kind of suggest that these people don't exist which will create so many issues to people from that community who, who basically are looking for like-minded people to share experiences with people in hungary people supporting this legislation argue in return saying that like this is and and to to use the prime minister's the president's own own words this is what victor orban had to say he called it a child protection law and says that it keeps sexual propaganda out of schools tv shows and adverts critics of that position said that law conflates homosexuality and paedophilia and the eu has strongly condemned it as discriminatory and not legal action against hungary now i don't have an awful lot to say because i think it's really easy to have an opinion on this this is abhorrent and horrible and disgusting and the eu has to do something about it what the eu does about it and how they go about doing that is something that's slightly more complex because could you just turn around and say well throw hungary out of the european union i mean they could technically do that i guess that's something that is kind of within the parameters of how the european union is set up that's something that they could do they could freeze their membership for example is that plausible and if the european union was to do that do they then give up any influence over hungary because Imagine a scenario where Hungary is thrown out of the European Union. Would that diminish the European Union's influence on Hungary? Undoubtedly. Would that create a vacuum for another great power to come in and influence Hungary? Yes. Would the European Union want Hungary to be more closely aligned with Russia or China? Definitely not. And that's where the issue comes in. So, so that's really the point of contention here. So the European Union is very much in a bind where if it goes for the nuclear option and throws Hungary out, they lose all of their soft power. And if they do nothing, they completely undermine what the European Union is meant to stand for. Zach, what do you make of this? I, I completely agree. It's it's not just about showing what power you have through legal means or through economic means. There's also that soft power that if Hungary were essentially were to be thrown, thrown out and kind of lured by the other countries, you are looking at an even more dangerous situation. Let's, let's not forget Hungary are not the only country that's passed the awful laws like this or want to pass laws like this. I think we've seen quite a hard start in Russia, for example. It, it is a very difficult position for the EU to take. Like I said in the, at the top of the segment about 
it's that fractured coalition, isn't it? There will be a school of thought, I think, within these nations of the European Union that, yes, I think you have to come down really hard on them. Then you have the other schools of thought that will go, well, we will lose our soft power. It will probably be it make things worse. And then you'll have it. That's the thing. It's those competing interests. It's those competing values. It's those competing approaches that that really do make supranational bodies such as the European Union. They put them they put them in such a bind where it's just difficult to see a way forward. Of course, we're jumping the gun in terms of the result of the referendum, but it, it's such a tough one to call in terms of what happens afterwards. Because even if the government to lose this referendum, I think there will still be a, a way in which this law will still go through at some point. I don't think it will be the end of it if the government was to lose this referendum. I think the other thing to remember about referendums is that, and this, I'm not in any way praising the, the, the government of Victor Orban, let me be perfectly clear, I'm, that's not my intention here, but governments only call referendums if they think they're going to win. And of course, being from the UK, we have a slightly warped perspective on that because we held a referendum and the government lost. But there isn't any chance that Victor Orban would propose a referendum of this nature if he thought there was a chance that he could lose. So I'm not even sure that talking about this in terms of kind of exercising Article 50 would be kind of jumping the gun because if Orban thinks that he can win and Orban is someone who has come to dominate Hungarian politics, then there's there's a hard chance that he might be right. And I think that, that there's lots of interesting perspectives on this. So Emmanuel Macron, the French president, has said that he's not in favour of kind of excluding Hungary from the EU. So this is what he said. It is an existential question for the Europeans. It's a big debate, but I'm not in favour of using Article 50. And this was kind of contradicted immediately by Mark Rutte, the Dutch prime minister, as I mentioned earlier, who said, and this was in a in a conference alongside, I believe, or at least kind of adjacent to Emmanuel Macron, he said that Hungary has no business being in the European Union anymore, adding that the long-term aim is to bring Hungary to its knees on this issue. There isn't a question about who holds more sway in the European Union, the Dutch or the French. Of course, the French are one of the dominant kind of parties in, in, in the organisation. And there are countries who also aren't particularly liberal when it comes to comes to this matter. So there will be those who are who are not not in accordance with the Hungarian position, but are at least somewhat sympathetic with them. And that's what becomes difficult because you had such a big expansion of the European Union and it now poses the question of how do they deal with this? And if Emmanuel Macron isn't willing to kind of go to one extreme and say, look, if you pass this legislation, you've got to go. Then the question is, is this existential for the European Union? Because Emmanuel Macron suggested it is existential. So if this law passes, does that mean the European Union has no future? If the, what well, I should say, if the law passes and Hungary remains in the EU, does that mean that there is no future for the European Union? It's just so fractured. It, it, it then becomes what are, what does the European Union stand for? And it's that's when it becomes binary and really complicated in terms of you're either for it or against it. And whatever you do will kind of show what, what your position is. I don't think it'll be the end of the European Union as such. It will begin 
that kind of what was prophesized five years ago in terms of there will be a moment maybe it's this moment which starts to wobble the bricks in the wall it it might not spark an exodus as such but it will start to think what are we in the european union for if they can't stand up to this this and this because it's always been claimed in for example in the referendum that britain would be for example much weaker in terms of the soft powers and etc 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 those kind of things will come back to the fore and we do have eurosceptic countries in the european union i think that's just a matter of european politics now it's not as if the european union is this utopian society i think there's many countries out there that are very much on the precipice of it could be this thing that tips them over the edge goes well actually what is the point of it i'm not saying that's going to mean everyone's going to leave but you can see where i'm going with it it's just becoming a bit shaky but yeah it, it's so uncertain to see what will happen but it is disturbing it's it's a worrying moment i think in europe and it's important to remember that there are poses kind of beyond the borders of, of the european union with regards to what exactly the european union stands for so you'll remember a couple of months ago so this took place during the ihf world championships the ice hockey world championships where they were meant to be held in belarus and latvia but at the last minute well a couple of months before the games were, were due to begin sponsors basically said look we're not going to belarus because of the political situation there um so they just held the games in latvia and during the tournament that was when the plane was hijacked and the journalist who was meant to be flying from one country to a to a European Union country was landed in Belarus and kind of arrested by the state police. Now, this issue has come up yet again. So a sprinter from Belarus who refused her team's order to fly home early from the Olympics has been granted a humanitarian visa by Poland. So Kristina Timnowskia, who is 24 years old, is currently at the Polish embassy in Tokyo after spending the night secured in a hotel under the protection from Japanese police. And the reason why I mention this in the, in the conversation about the European Union is this is an example where the EU is standing up for kind of the worldview in the sense that kind of we're a liberal organisation, we're standing up for these values about kind of political freedoms, human rights, etc., etc. So is there a contradiction here if you have Hungary within the EU that is is contemplating these laws that are clearly in breach of the liberal standards set by the EU? And these are standards that the EU has sought to, to implement around the world. Like the EU is trying to use its soft power to, to bring about kind of liberal reforms elsewhere. So is there a contradiction here? And what does it say about the state of the union? Yeah, it, again, it's a difficult one to see on the outside. I think the difference in approach is quite, it's quite telling, isn't it? That I think the European Union are more used to having problems within their own house to get that in order rather than outside of it. And again, I, I think it is about what are the values of the European Union going forward. I think it's not as simple as it was when the whole inception of the European community, which was to have a trading community. It's, I think, the kind of the teleology of the European Union has developed in such a way that there is a sense of ideology with the European Union in terms of here are the values. It's very much a liberal a liberal ideology that they have. Now in terms of Belarus, I just, again it's what do the European Union do? They can't 
look as if they're being very hard on Belarus in terms of this. people will say, well, they're not part of it. Why are you going coming down really hard on them? But at the same time, again, it's what do you stand for? Are you going to be silent on the issue or are you going to make a stand for it? It's that really horrible in between that they're going to be caught in time and time again. It, it's quite sad. I think Belarus, again, it's same with Hungary. They are not the first and they're not the last problems the European Union is going to encounter like this. For sure. And it's complicated as well. So there was a discussion, this is completely separate, but it's, it's to do with the European Union, so I think it's worth mentioning. There was a, there was a conversation on Jeremy Vine's programme today about the European Union with Owen Jones. <laughs> and I'm not sure if you've seen the clips, like Owen Jones and a Eurosceptic commentator whose name I honestly don't know and, and, and can't really be bothered to research. Um, and it, it was a conversation about, well, is the EU being vindictive in reintroducing, or rather introducing, I guess, um, kind of visa charges for British nationals? So basically the European Union, and this is a policy that they formulated while the UK was still part of the European Union, Basically, if you want to travel to Europe as a third party country, you have to pay to, to get into the countries. That's basically how it works. And this isn't groundbreaking. For example, if you want to travel to Turkey and go on holiday in Turkey, you have to pay for a, for a tourist visa. And you, you can literally pay cash once you arrive in Turkey, for example. Or at least you could when I, when I last went. That was quite some time ago, time ago, though, to be fair. And the reason I raise this is just because there is so much discourse and so much contestation and so much debate about the European Union, I think it has reached an existential level where no one is quite sure what it's meant to be. Um, and I say this as someone who is broadly a supporter of the European Union. I'm, I'm not of the view that the European Union is perfect. Um, I would have wanted the, the UK to remain, for example. But the European Union obviously isn't perfect. So what's happening in Hungary at the minute is bad in terms of how the European Union is dealing with that and how there isn't a unified message. The coronavirus vaccine rollout initially was was really bad in terms of how they kind of sought to interfere with the process in the UK with regards to the vaccine, Northern Ireland, and all that kind of stuff. That was really terrible and a political own goal. And there are lots of things that the European Union has done badly. But I honestly believe there is still a future for the EU, but only if they find a way of closing their ranks and going about things in a unified way. The EU basically faces this question. Are we going to be an organisation that is ideological in the sense that you have to have these values to be a member? And then if they were to do that, then you have a solid foundation from which to say, look, third country, you need to live up to our values because that's the rules by which we play the game. All the Europeans can turn around and say, look, we're just a free trading bloc. And then kind of Brexiteers dreams come true in the sense that kind of the, the political element of the European Union falls by the wayside. I think that's kind of a conversation that is coming down the track if more things like the situation in Hungary continues to happen. I guess going back to Belarus, what should the European Union do? Because this is a country that's kind of right in its sphere of influence, of course, is, is heavily influenced by Russia. What kind of threat does that situation pose in terms of kind of being a major source of instability kind of on the continent? It's a huge threat to stability, just because it, it reminds you in a way of how the European Union were kind of absent in the whole Ukraine crisis, that it is a question of what do they do? They're not 
a member of the European Union, so they can't threaten them with kicking them out or sealing off trade ties, for example. I think it's going to have to be a lot more nuanced, and as a result, it's going to have to be a long-term... There has to be a long-term strategy behind whatever they do. It can't just be, well, if you keep doing this, we'll just kick you out of things. It, it can't be as reductionist as that. I think it's going to have to simply be seeing if they can persuade it, 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 it's su- it's such a difficult position because of russia being directly in belarus's sphere as well and we've already seen the belarusian elections for example causing a lot of controversy as again the european union were very haphazard with that it it will have to be a lot of diplomacy involved i don't think there's any way out of it apart from diplomacy i think it will be about whatever russia do can the european union raise it can they kind of, it's it's like a poker game isn't it so what what does russia bring to the table can the european union go higher or will they stick and it would just be difficult to see how that plays out just simply because russia are that closely aligned with belarus and i think that probably i think in a way kind of nicely puts a bow on this conversation so the european union in terms of its foreign policy. So we've spoken a little bit about internal policy with regards to the situation in Hungary. But foreign policy is, is a lot more complex because the EU, and, and there's a oh, there's a really good quote from a US kind of foreign secretary in the post-war period that basically says that kind of Britain has lost an empire and is yet to find its role. And I think that kind of applies to the situation in Europe now where is it going to be this power projector on the international stage? Is it going to play a key role in kind of the global fight against uh, climate change, for example? Or is it going to be a little bit more kind of sit back and, and, and let the world get on with it? And I think the European Union's relationship with Russia and China and the United States is definitely something to keep an eye on going forwards. Zach, any final thoughts on, on the EU before we look to wrap up the show? Uh, just... I think there's a final comment about, I think they seem to have weathered the vaccine stall. Uh, that was that was a huge, huge moment of brinkmanship over over the past few months, but we've not really heard anything since. It seems that they may have weathered that storm, but the bigger storm is obviously yet to come. For sure. And another kind of story that we've not mentioned today, but is, is also relevant, is um, the wildfires in Greece. And this is relevant because of the COP26 summit coming up this year. And I think it's going to be, as I, as I just mentioned, I think it's going to be really interesting how the European Union continues to look to deal with climate change. Are they going to start to be even more aggressive? Because it's important to remember that EU climate legislation is actually quite progressive in how far it goes. And I think kind of it compares quite well with California. So California was like the first place in the world to introduce carbon cap and trade that was brought into the EU. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how aggressive EU leaders will be with this because now they have a genuine and of course there's been many examples of this there was the flooding in Germany just a couple of weeks ago but now there have been a couple of really significant climate related emergencies happen within the European Union's borders so it's important to see how they respond to that on the international stage. Zach the question that I finished the podcast uh, rather finished the interview segment with Enoch with was simply by asking him, is there anything he's looking out for in the kind of days, weeks, months, years ahead? So I thought I'd put the same question to you. Is there anything kind of, it doesn't have to be political, it can be something you're looking forward to, but is there something kind of podcast listeners should 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 keep an eye out for going forward? Uh, I think we, we said this before we went on air, 
about how we're in that really quiet period of politics where things are happening, but they're not as substantial as they usually are just because Parliament's in recess. I think the autumn is going to be absolutely huge. I think there's so much that is un there's so much tension in the Tory party that there are three big things that are going to be on the agenda for the Tories. Planning reform, it sounds really dry and boring, but that could be a nuclear bomb for the Tories in terms of voting tension in the blue wall, in terms of housing. You'll have national insurance. We spoke about that in the last episode about how that's going to be a real problem for the Tory party in some areas. And in general, about the, as we come out of COVID and into the real world, into kind of the new normal, how do Tory MPs cope with it? Are we going to see um, a return to conservatism, which a lot of people can have kind of accused the Tory party of abandoning? Or are we going to see a really new, newly invented Tory party just because of the competition of voters? It, that autumn is going to be so huge for the Tory party going forward. It's going to be huge for Labour in terms of can they get back? It's going to be huge for the Liberal Democrats. And so yes, I think the autumn is something for all of us to look out for only a few weeks away. Linking in with what Zach has just said about kind of the autumn, I think international travel is going to be really interesting. So there was a story, I think it was the front of the Daily Tele Telegraph yesterday, so on, on Tuesday this is, um, about how Boris Johnson had stepped in to save holidaymakers from kind of the rules that were going to prevent people from being able to go on holiday with regards to the Amber watch list. Um, and James O'Brien, as, as always, pretty much made the point very eloquently in saying that, well, the person who Boris Johnson has has stepped in to kind of get in the way of is, is it turns out, Boris Johnson, whose who's rules these were. Um, and I think it's going to be really interesting to see how the government deals with international travel going forward, because there's been a lot of talk in Cabinet about how we need to open up, how we need to kind of take a more kind of progressive approach, how we need to take a more expansive approach to this. Um, and kind of open up to, to support various different sectors and industries. And I think that'll be interesting to see. Really, really interesting to see what is the government's approach through the rest of the summer, because obviously it's peak season for holidays, but also going into going into the autumn and the winter, because it's big money involved. Like airlines are, are expensive, for example. So I think that will be really interesting. And I also just really want to go on holiday, preferably to Canada. So if, if we could kind of, work something out mr johnson that would be that would be really really nice maybe maybe as a as a um an incentive to get my second vaccine the government could give me some air miles or something that would be nice um but on that note i think that probably draws this episode episode 51 i believe series two episode two of the midfield politics podcast to a close as always my name has and continues to be luke james i've been joined across the dispatch box First by Zach Green and second by Enoch Makungu. You can find all of their details into the description of this episode below. But for now, and as always, stay safe and keep voting. Um, just, um...
Hello. Hiya. Hiya. How you doing? Good, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Long time no see. Well, it's been a while. Sorry I was late. I, no, I, no. I think my mum brought my microphone for work meetings and I had to wait until we went to lunch. I could steal it back. Um, <laughs> uh, dear. Dear, dear. No, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. How's, how's your summer been? Some, uh, so summer has been, it's been good, um, you know. I spent most of it working on this um, thing for the BBC City of Culture thing for Coventry. Uh -huh. um, but now that's over and I have I have nothing to do. <laughs> I've been trying to find some work down here in London, but it's, I'm mean, about to say it's harder than you expect, but I imagine it's probably about exactly what you expect. Um, so I'm just trying to find things to do with my time now. I'm just sitting around my room. Um, watching watching Love Island, which I've watched I've watched far too much of in the past 
past week or so. <laughs> yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? You're second year, aren't you? I'm a second year, yeah. Well, yeah, third to... year now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, well, yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? No, and well, no, it's similar. So I, I'm from like run well, Essex when something good happens, and East London when something bad happens. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, and there are like no part-time jobs for for next year, so that's that's cool for me. So I've got. Um, a grand total of six hundred and twelve pounds left over from my master's student finance. Um, in terms of obviously the rest goes on the actual yeah yeah course. So that'll be interesting. Um, but no, great. Um, do you have any? Um, you're you're not on the exec anymore, or are you? I am. I'm treasurer. I'm still. I'm still on the exec. I just uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, treasurer and former. Former head of news. Former head of news. Former head of news. Awesome. And you pronounce your surname Makungu. Am I yeah. Correct? Perfect. 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 Amazing. Um. So basically, as is tradition for this hellscape of a podcast, I don't have a plan. Um. <laughs> in terms of what we'll cover, so I was just gonna follow your lead essentially. Um, okay. So that's all cool. Um. I'll ask if you want to shout out any of your social media stuff to to kick off. Um, so literally anything you want to shout out, shout out. Um, feel free to yeah. share that off for, for Roar or, or, or whatever. Uh, obviously your own social media as well, but if you want to yeah. shout out Roar, do that as well. Um, so yeah, um, all good. Are you good to go? Yeah, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. Perfect. Okay, so how am I going to start? And that is what caught Zach and Al. No, my God, what am I doing? One, two, three. And that is what caught our attention over the past seven days, which brings us nicely onto our second interview segment of series two. And I'm delighted to be joined by Raw's former head of news and now treasurer, Enoch Makungu. Enoch, how are you doing? Um, I'm I'm good. Thank you for having me. No worries. No, I was really looking forward to this. I, when I was speaking to Zach and I was like, we need to interview people to kind of mix up a little bit. I was like, who am I going to interview? And I was like, right, before we branch out and, and start pestering people i don't know yet i'll go through people i know um and enoch was like very high on the list so i'm delighted that you agreed to come on um we should explain so enoch you study history and politics at the university of warwick yes yes going into your final year um yes. and the reason for our meeting today is that you are a bit of an american politics uh I'm trying to think of a word. Nerd, watcher. fanatic, Nerd, watch, watcher, fanatic. watcher. I'll take watcher. I'll take watcher. It feels respectable. Watcher. Yes. Watcher. It's like it's like train watching, but with American politics, which I mean can also be a bit of a kind of train crash at times anyway. And on that note, so I was looking at, at, at the CNN kind of US politics homepage at the minute. Yeah. There's a lot of coronavirus discourse. Um, so I should say before we before we move on, we're currently recording this segment of the podcast. On the 3rd of August, first of all, how on earth is it the 3rd of August? I've got no idea. Um, at 12.06. So if, I don't know, California declares independence between now and when I speak with Zach and we haven't covered it in the show, that would be why. Um, so, yeah, as I was saying, American politics is kind of a wash with coronavirus discourse at the minute because there's a kind of another spike in cases going on. Lindsey Graham has just tested positive and he's saying that he has flu-like symptoms there's lots of discussions about whether or not it should be kind of allowed to to mandate people taking the vaccine. Um, and on the other end of the spectrum, there's this kind of outrage at Barack Obama's 60th birthday party. So 
and that's just the coronavirus. But today we kind of wanted to talk about all sorts of different things. So, so first of all, Enoch, the way we start the podcast is I ask Zach what has caught his attention over the past seven days. So in US politics, what has kind of caught your attention recently? Um, I would have to say the big thing I'm looking at right now is this bipartisan um, infrastructure plan that they're, they're trying to get through. Um, so it's, it's been a sort of a joke in US politics for years that Trump was trying to have every week on the Trump administration was infrastructure week, where Trump was trying to launch a big new infrastructure plan that never materialized. Um, so Joe Biden has finally got back at him and actually launched infrastructure week. And the original plan was Democrats were going to do a big, massive, I think more like $3.5 trillion infrastructure plan. Um, but they've now decided to do, sort of split up in two stages. So to do one bipartisan plan now with Republicans, which I, I'm, I'm going to try and find. I always, I'm very bad with the numbers. The numbers in my head are never, they're never quite what we, I, I want. Um, yeah, so like a, little, a small plan now with Republicans, but then a larger plan later for reconciliation, which is like the system they use to pass budgets in the Senate where they can't get um, 60, 60 votes in, on, in the Senate House it, itself. Um, so I've been watching that very closely because it seems like every day a Republican joins, Republican drops out. Currently, Mitch McConnell is saying it's going to go through. So it's it looks like, it looks like Biden might actually get on these big bipartisan victories he promised he would and no one thought he could. Um, yeah, that's what that's, um, yeah. So it's it's fifty. It's um. I mean, it's actually still it's still pretty big relatively. It's five hundred. It's five hundred fifty billion um infrastructure infrastructure spending. So it's it's just it's you know it's just the big one. And for the people who haven't been kind of following this quite as closely, <laughs> yes. what's which I assume would be quite a lot of our listeners in fairness. Yeah. Um, the difference between the um, bipartisan bill and kind of the Democrat only bill is that the Democrat only bill covers things that you often kind of in ordinary circles wouldn't necessarily refer to as infrastructure. Um, so c can you briefly kind of go into what the difference between the two is? Yeah, I mean, well, so the first, the first major, major, major difference is just like the sheer size. Like, um, 50, like 550 billion is still big, but it is not the same level of big, um, uh, you know, that we were looking at before. Um, but I, but again, the second difference, is like, as you said, Democrats were trying to expand the definition of what infrastructure was before. So they were like, you know, spending on care, that's infrastructure. They Family planning, that's infrastructure. There's so many different things that, you know, I, I mean, I will hold my hands up here and say I do. I think if I had to put myself politically down, I'd probably lean more Democrat in America. But dear God, they were really trying to force through some things that just weren't, like, you know, being rude about it, they just weren't infrastructure. But I think they were all worthwhile things to spend money on, and they thought this was a good way to get it through. Um, yeah, so the new the new bill is more focused on what we consider traditional infrastructure, so like you know roads, building, plumbing works, that kind of thing. Um, if I can, I'm trying. I as you speak, I'm trying to find the exact details. Of, okay, so exactly, there's a pretty good graph in the New York Times. Like the original bill, it would cover things like you know, oh, cover obviously things you can infrastructure like roads, bridges, in, um, manufacturing, but also cover things like community in uh, house care for like the elderly. Um, ensuring everyone has broadband, creating clean energy credits, that kind of schooling, that kind of thing. Um, whereas, of course, the new bill it just focuses it, it just focuses on roads, um, clearing of abandoned. Uh, this is one thing that someone deliberately highlighted: clearing of abandoned wells, um, mines, and superfunding sites, um, power, and then power infrastructure, all that kind of stuff. So less of the, you know, the more audacious goals of Democrats. For sure, and yeah. the other the other thing that I wanted to ask in terms of the infrastructure bill, and yeah. and, and and this will bleed into other conversations as well about kind of Congress at the minute, yeah. is what kind of role are the Conservative Democrats, the the Joe Manchins of of the world, playing in this conversation? How kind of bought in 
are the likes of Manchin in terms of the bipartisan bill compared to the kind of more radical Democrat bill? Well, I think the, the key thing we have here is that Joe Manchin is basically flat out saying there's no way to do the bigger bill. He will not help with the bigger bill unless they pass the, the bipartisan one. Which I um, so I think is is this big issue where like Joe Manchin, I mean he's been intermodular getting it done like lots of meetings. I think Lindsey Graham actually caught COVID at one of the meetings at Joe Manchin houseboat potentially, which is something that we have to be watching out for. Yeah, but the meeting was conducted in houseboat. He brought him into the White House. He got the agreement of these people. They're the reason that they are the reason hopefully they can get to sixty votes and it will it will pass. Um, but the only reason this even some of them are contemplating is because without this, Joe Manchin does not pass a bigger bill. Yeah, and that, that is ultimately kind of at the crux of lots of issues. And again, they've had, Manchin has been particularly problematic in terms of Democrats passing things on kind of voting reform and that kind of stuff as well. And speaking about the broader picture and kind of to start the, to start the segment, I spoke about kind of the coronavirus situation in America. Yeah. How is the Biden administration dealing with that at the moment? Kind of what are the national policies? Because I was reading something earlier where kind of certain parts of Texas, even if they wanted to bring in a mask mandate, say they couldn't because of, of local laws there, even if kind of they, they disagreed with them kind of at a more kind of local level. So what what's the coronavirus situation at the minute? Well I think the there are two big headlines, which is that Joe Biden he wanted to have a seventy seven Americans vaccinated to Biden the fourth of July. Obviously that part was on, was not reached. Um but we have now just passed seventy um thirty percent. And the second big thing is that there's plenty of places in America trying to bring back ma mask mandates rather because, um, and I'll have to jump back a bit actually, rather than um, in giving, putting vaccine mandates, particularly in New York, um, because New York tried to put a vaccine mandate in schools, teachers unions protested it, so that's been scrapped instead of going for, like, for a mask mandate. And there's now been this whole discussion of whether or not it's, you know, better to simply say, look, just get vaccinated twice, then that's it, no think about it again, versus basically masks constantly for the next year or so uh, and what's going to be more appealing to the public for sure and kind of in terms of the international perspective on this the canadian government has kind of changed their policy with regards to americans entering canada that comes into force i believe well i think to kind of the start of august so kind of now um that hasn't yet been reciprocated so there are still some differences in terms of how that is being dealt with um one of the other hot button issues in terms of the coronavirus is as you mentioned vaccine so as many of you listening probably aren't following how kind of america is distributing vaccines it's a little bit different i say a little bit it's very different to what we're doing here in the uk so basically it's more of a free-for-all so you kind of sign up and and go and and that's kind of how they've, they've got about it which has allowed them to get through a little bit more rapidly than say here in the united kingdom who followed kind of the the, the steps through one of the questions at the minute is should people should employers be able to say kind of you have to have a vaccine in order to work here whether that's kind of a healthcare setting or whatever it might be how do the two parties sit on this kind of question well i think the big thing we've seen in vaccines really is that even though you know donald trump was very proud of the fact that you know he spearheaded the vaccines and you know in many ways um some of the vaccines coming in america will you know call they will help by his you know his massive moonshot program um republican party's taking a very hard line against it mostly because Fox News took a very hard line against it, um, against vaccinations. But they are now coming around slowly, I think, as it becomes increasingly clear that Delta variant is hitting particularly red places particularly hard. And without vaccinations, I, I mean, it's, that, that explains the sudden dramatic shift we've seen since July the, um, July the 4th, where we've seen vaccinations speed up so much. 
I think both sides are rallying behind vaccinations now. I, it's just becoming an issue whether or not it's mandated. It's the real key issue. No matter, no matter all the other divides, the real key issue for now is that do you mandate vaccinations for things like going to concerts, going out, or do you accept this would be other people's personal choice and seek to sort of mask mandates? Or, I mean, some people say just, you know, throw your hands up and deal with COVID as is. And in terms of the um, kind of pandemic adjacent kind of policy, so aside from the direct kind of how we're dealing with this from a health perspective, there's also kind of pressure in terms of the legislation in the United States with regards to housing and, and rent and all this kind of stuff. So today, the um, kind of the legislation that prevented people from being evicted because they were unable to pay their rent during the pandemic has, has been lifted, which is obviously a cause of huge concern. I imagine the Biden administration is going to have to do something about that. Kind of what what has the attitude been kind of within the Democratic Party? I think the clear signal from Biden that um, is that only Congress can fix this legislation. The president does not have the authority in his mind to simply unilaterally oppose. Unilaterally say, actually, no, eviction momentum. Um, I can't pronounce the word, so I apologize. Memorium. Memorium. You know what? I'm just going to. Everyone from now on, take it as assumed. That's why I made my say eviction ban. That's what that's what I mean. Um, the eviction ban is basically I mean, he says only Congress can fix it, and he's saying he wants Congress to fix it. The issue is again, though, that you know we have the split here between Democrats who are currently in Congress and people like Kirsten Cinema, who has who's on holiday currently. She's on holiday, and she has um, she's told them she has no plans to return to, to pass the legislation before they go on, on recess. Um, and, all, and Republicans are exactly leaping to, in to help um, on this particular issue. So yeah, I think there's a strong will for Democrats to get this sorted, but it's actually just pure now practical challenges to achieving anything. Where again, it's um, it happens when you have such a paper thin majority that one person literally throwing their hands and saying, "You know what, guys? Actually, I already really planned my holiday for weeks. I'm not going to, to work today." Um, well, what can you do? For sure. And kind of before we move over and kind of I want to ask a couple of questions about kind of foreign affairs and yeah. then finally about kind of the, the GOP as well, more specifically in terms of Biden's style. So we spoke at the top of the segment about kind of how he wants to pass this uh, this bill with the Republicans is is looking for bipartisan is the word I'm looking for. Yeah. He's trying to work in a bipartisan spirit. How well is that working so far? I think if I'm. Um... Uh, this, uh, this is going uh, to be something that mostly targets people who know about American politics, but I will try and explain it. But Joe Biden is in many ways the anti-Ted Cruz, in the sense that Ted Cruz is hated by everyone. Even the people who work with Ted Cruz hate Ted Cruz. Um, if, official is Lindsey Graham, who's as diehard Republican as you can find, who once said that if you shot Ted Cruz on the Senate floor, and the trial's on the Senate floor, and you're being prosecuted by the Senate, you could not find any votes to convict you. Um, no one in the world likes Ted Cruz. Well, on the other hand, People do really like Joe Biden. Um, I think something people notice is that, you know, um, in comparison to when, you know, under Biden or under the Clinton, where you sort of had the, and in fact, to be also said, under Trump and under George Bush, there was sort of this sort of pocket industry of people publishing books or just being like, God, this person's awful. Read here the secret reasons this person's awful. You didn't even know yet. Biden's not had that similar kind of thing because he is just very, he's a very likable figure to people. People go, oh, you know, Joe Biden. I've I've had strong feelings that go yeah he's like a nice enough guy. I think that effect we've seen that effect work in Senate as well where Republicans are more willing to go to him and be like you know what we can get a deal done. It's easy to get do a deal with you and not lose any respect and not like lose constituents or anything. I think we can do this and survive. And that's making 
I wouldn't say it's making, you know, because obviously there's some, still some real serious issues going on in Congress right now. I mean, there was that sort of anti-mask mandate protest we saw a few days ago, which was just absolutely absurd. But I think overall, there's more willingness to be like, you know what? If we can find ways to compromise and find ways to work together, you can find maybe like five or six Republican votes who are willing to work with Joe Biden on that kind of thing. Uh, even up to, you know, over 10 now with this particular infrastructure bill. For sure. And I think that that's a really interesting point with regards to the change in, in, in tax in terms of kind of the White House. Of course, there's going to be a massive change in tax between Trump and Biden, but of course, it's, it's worth pointing out. Um, foreign policy, I think, is really interesting. And, and one of the issues that has been coming down the track for a very long time is the troop withdrawal from Afghanistan. So, for example, today, the Biden administration has expanded access to a refugee program for Afghans who, who worked with the US during kind of the time in, in the country. What is your view on how America has dealt with the troop withdrawal? I, I think I will, I, I mean, it's very difficult for me to say this because I'm a massive narcissist. I will hold my hands up and say, you know what? I'm not the military expert here. I think there's plenty, there's plenty of people out there who know better than me on this particular issue. I think Joe Biden is going back to the best way possible. Uh, it was always going to be difficult because, you know, I mean, there's to an extent, this is just a surrender. You know, the Taliban are the US is basically fleeing for the Taliban to be back in again and to lose lots of the ground they've 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 hard you know, they've hard won in the years. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think to the extent this one, I'm going to get everyone who works with us out. I'm going to try to do as much as I can to try and build a framework here that means some of the liberalism we've injected in this country can stick around afterwards. I just I think it's it's one of those situations where you know. There's so much going on in US politics at one time. I don't think there's been enough chance for Senate to actually react to what he's doing on, on them, you know, on Afghanistan. I think if there was a clearer docket of with Chloe, if Chloe wasn't here and there's a clearer docket, I think you'll be seeing a much harsher backlash towards it if people actually look at the details of what's going on there. But since that can't happen, I think he's gonna get out pretty scot-free, actually. Yeah, I think there are some parallels to be drawn between how the US is acting with regards to Afghanistan with with Vietnam. It's almost like, yeah, we're, yeah. we're never going to win in this situation. So let's just kind of scuttle off as quickly as possible and hope yeah. no one notices. Um, yeah, I think, yeah. I, I think the big difference here is that in, with Vietnam, there was um, very much a sense from basically everyone in politics to think, they could just stick it out. Like Nixon didn't pull out of Vietnam purely because he was like, you know what, we've lost. He, he pulled out because he thought he saw a, a chance for tactical advantage at home of being like, you know what, pressure's off. Whereas if Joe Biden, I think Joe Biden's big advantage is for lots of Americans, one of Afghanistan's already over. They don't they don't think about it most of their life. It's it's one of those you know advantages of you know this draftless war. Is that Joe, they could have, he could have kept fighting that war for four years, got to the end of his term, and someone on news would have been like, oh yeah, more Afghanistan's happening, and people have been like, oh wait, really? Um, so I think there's a difference of like popular compression, popular view of the thing. Um, but also I, I think with Nixon. There was a more resigned state within the U.S. Army about Vietnam. They were like, you know, we have we have properly properly lost this. In, separate separate from Joe Biden, Nixon himself. Whereas, like, I think in this in this case, it's very much Joe Biden being like, guys, we've lost here. Just give up on it. And the sorry, my voice is going. And the U.S. Army being like, no, we can we can hold on here. We can keep going. Um, yeah. And one of there's two more things I wanted to ask briefly. Yeah. First of all, we've spoken kind of in a a Republican adjacent way about what the GOP is doing at the minute with regards to the infrastructure bill, coronavirus, all this kind of stuff and how the discourse is separated. It it saddens me in a way that I'm going to ask you this question in yeah. August 2021 
but August 2021, as, as we've seen over the course of this year, very, very quickly turns into kind of August 2022 and August 2023. And I have a feeling you probably know where I'm going with this now. Um, who's going to run for the Republicans in 24? Um, if Donald Trump is still alive and functioning, it will be him. It will be him. Um, the only way I see him not running is if they, they ban him from their party. Um, he has massive, to this, to this day, he has massive influence over the base. Um, he's massive over the base. He must have over the party itself. It's structures. He's he's over the last four years bent the party in his image in a way we've never really seen a president in modern times. Um, he's the closest thing they have to like a proper British style party leader who's consistent and stays the same. And it's like as far as the base is concerned, like the people he endorses, they should win. That's it. That's it. That's the whole ball game. Um, if if Trump can't if Trump can't run. Um, I I don't think there's a clear successor. I think the problem the problem of having someone who's so dominant in the field it's sort of like in 2016 the Democrats actually where Hillary Clinton was so dominant in the field that um you know before before the actual the actual election came along obviously once the election started Bernie was obviously the obvious second choice and before the actual election came along who would have guessed who would have been the second the runner up in that election no one would know to tell you no one would know to tell you I think it's very much the same with 2024. And another question on Trump, I had a sneaky suspicion you'd probably say Donald Trump. It was kind of within my answer as well. Yeah. Is it possible for him to win an election without being on Twitter? I mean, he couldn't win an election while on Twitter. So I think that this is, this is I think his big problem is um, Trump, Trump won on a fluke. He spent four years getting more unpopular. He lost the election and proceeded to continue acting ways that made him more unpopular. I think Republicans can nominate him in 2024, and maybe you know he can rehabilitate his image to a degree. But I think at uh, the same time, I just I don't see, I I don't see how he rebuilds enough popularity to become a credible challenger. Like, I mean, I'm I'm not I'm gonna I'm not gonna be the leader who sits here right now and says Trump versus Biden 2024 is gonna be a, a Walter Mondale style blowout where Joe Biden wins all but one state. That's say to me Florida. But I am I am gonna be the guy who sits here and be like. I don't see Trump has in two elections now, two elections in a row, lost the popular vote, and now one election lost the electoral college vote. I no one in history has come back from that, you know. No one in history has come back from that. I mean, if the man does it, give him an award, figure out, get a brain sleep for science. He's clearly a political mastermind. But I just don't see how it happens. And you think it will be Biden in twenty four? Um, I think the only way it's not Biden is if Biden is genuinely too infirm, like America. Um, I don't. I, I think the phrase uh, "gentrock." I, I keep pronouncing words wrong. This is how you I've not talked to anyone in a long time. I can visualize where in my head. I'm going to say "gentrocracy," you know, rule of the old people. America, it's got a lot of old people. Joe Biden, for an old person, he's he's not that. I think a lot of people make jokes here you know, about oh, yeah, Joe Biden looks like he's you know on downward slope. The, the thing, the fact of the matter is, I think you know, he used to, yeah, he used to have a lot more energy. He's now in a more relaxed phase of his life. You know, but he's still he's still going. He's still got some gusto to him. Um, and he's, you know, most of the, the other major Democrat, like Kamala Harris, I think, you know, if Joe Biden, it's not Joe Biden, I could see her turning right around her. I just worry about whether or not the base would accept her. That's the only question. Bernie Sanders, um, I love the man. He's he's not going to run again. He, it's, it's I think, same, if Joe Biden's not able to run in 2024, neither is Bernie Sanders. We have to put a very firm marker on that. And I guess maybe Elizabeth Warren could try and make come at me, Pete, but I think it's going to be at Kamala Harris if it's not Joe Biden. And that's the thing when when you look at kind of some of the figures who who could perhaps run as kind of the Democratic nominee for, for president. Joe Biden currently at the time of recording is seventy eight. Um, Elizabeth Warren is seventy two. 
Bernie, almost said Bernie Eccleston then, Bernie Sanders is 79. So, of course, that does kind of leave it open to Harris. I'd imagine if, if, if Biden isn't the person to run. Now, we open this segment by kind of, I say we, I open the segment by asking Enoch, what has kind of caught your attention in American politics at the minute? The way that we're going to close all of these interview segments is by asking the guests kind of, what should we look out for in American politics going forward? So, Enoch, over to you. What is kind of the story that we should look out for kind of going towards the end of the year? I think you should keep your eyes very solidly um, on any any single state race you can. I think there's a bunch of state races coming up. And I think especially ones that involve lots of suburbs, because that will tell you about the future fortune of the GOP going into next year. If the GOP is still losing in suburbs, they are... I don't know, I was about to use a word, I realised that you probably don't know if I use it. I'm going to say screwed. Screw, screwed, okay? They are screwed going into the, the midterms next year. And the GOP do badly in midterms. That's something very, very interesting about how Joe Biden is doing as, um, as president. And I think it could it could say some very positive things for Joe Biden about 2024, but we, we will see. Enoch, you, you uh, to, to the listeners, so they have, or actually had a show on, on Enoch's radio station, Roll 1251am. Um, the football and hockey show, and and, and the, the penultimate week I was recording, or rather it was live, it was in the studio, and I was speaking to the film editor of, of the, the newspaper I used to run, um, and I just threw a question over to him, like, any final thoughts? To which James really helpfully replied, given that this is obviously you have to comply with Ofcom regulations, simply, fuck you, Aether. And then kind of Enoch walked in and was like, what on earth is going on? So no, you, know, you, you were more than welcome to say the word if you wanted to, uh, but completely um, up to you. That does kind of though draw this segment to a close. The only other thing we should say to Enoch, Enoch, where can the people find you on social media? Because I've got to say, of all of the kind of student journalisty type people at Warwick, you are probably the most entertaining follow. So, so where can people find you? <laughs> Um, you, you can find me at Enoch, but I'm, I've had some, you know, hope, hopefully my name will be spelled in the description and then you can find me at Enoch Bakungu, um, basically everywhere. And also please go follow Raw. It's a great radio station. You can find that at Raw Topic 1am. And we promise that future presenters and hosts won't swear live on it. At least like, <laughs> I hope. <laughs> I, I can't promise that for legal. I feel like if I did promise that I would lose my job. I could just hope they don't. I hope, I hope they don't. I can't promise anything. Fingers crossed. Well, James has graduated now, so so hopefully not. Um, Enoch, thank you so, so much for your time. And that brings to a close the second interview segment of Series 2 of the Midfield Politics Podcast. If you have any requests for interviewees going forward, please do let me know at LukeJames underscore 32 on Twitter. And well, anyway, back to the show. Enoch, that was awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was good. I've missed talking about This was great. Thank you for having me on. This was really, this is really good. No it's worries. Really good. No. Tell me where it's really... out, and I'll share it. Everything, you know. I'll, I'll yeah, no, I'll attack you. Um, so what we normally do, I'll, I'll do a, I'll, I'll promote it through the week, so I'll attack you all the time. Um, yeah, I'll get all the retweets. I love telling people I'm doing something. Um, they don't like listening to it, but I love telling them about it. Um, <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on. This was great. No worries. No, I really enjoy talking politics with you. You're, you're, mm. yeah. Yeah, you're right. you're really really good. Uh, yeah. awesome. All right, I'll let, I'll let you go back to it. Oh no, I'll see you. See you later. Awesome. Yeah, speak soon. See you. Cheers. Bye. Bye.